Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Abdurrahman Malik. I'm canvassing the world for the most interesting people to hear about their journeys, their work, and what it means to be alive in the world today. And perhaps nobody has captured that experience of being alive better than the 13th century Persian poet and Sufi mystic Jalaluddin Rumi in his poem, The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. So welcome to This Being Human, a podcast inspired by Rumi's words and motivated by all those who carry that message forward in the world today. Today, I speak to a rising star from Lebanon's fashion scene. I wanted to create this controversy and kickstart the conversation again. And it hit me, what if I put these pretty clothes on the garbage, on a, on a landfill? Would people be interested? Ronnie Hillu puts a lot of thought into the messages he's sending with his fashion line, and he knows how to get people's attention. He's still in his 20s, but already runs his own brand, which has been featured at London and Paris Fashion Weeks and praised in industry magazines. His clothes are fresh, but rooted in tradition, recycled materials with modern cuts, a style that looks both ancient and brand new, traditional and androgynous. He made a big splash in the media in 2019 when he staged a photo shoot on a literal mountain of garbage. We'll talk about why he did that, and we'll also hear about this new fashion scene rising in Lebanon, and about surviving the Beirut explosion of 2020. We started by talking about where his lifelong pursuit began. I was actually brought up in a mid-class family with like my aunts, they were all into, like from my dad's side, they were all into sewing, and my mom was like, very much into clothing. She used to dress us as kids, you know, she, and she, actually she used to upcycle her own clothes. So I started watching my mom and my aunts and I, I was intrigued in whatever they do as a kid. And then growing up, I, I think I was at around the age of 12. I remember I saw my cousin creating this garment and I wanted to do just like her. And I remember I would get plastic bags, like those big trash bags. And my sister, who's a year younger, I would make her stand, like stand still for, I don't know, like three, four hours. And then I would just uh, kind of like, you know, glue or weld the plastic bags on her trying to create, I don't know, a dress or something. And it started like that. And then after graduation, I was really lost uh, university, what I wanted to do. So I did one year of computer science and then two years of business marketing. I was good at business marketing. I really enjoyed it. 
but something did not click. I didn't feel complete yet. And that's where my parents actually interfered and they asked me to go back to fashion school because back then my cousin told me about this free fashion school in Lebanon called Creative Space Beirut. And I went there, I, I asked for an interview from the founder. I went there and once I saw it, I fell in love with the, with the place, with the entire vibe. And that's when I realized that maybe this is what I'm meant to do in life. And one thing led to another, and here I am in 2021 with a brand, uh, with my own brand. I have to say, I already love your parents. Which parent from a Middle Eastern background tells their kids, no, we're not going to do engineering. No, this lawyer thing isn't for you. Business isn't for you. You have to do fashion. That's remarkable. Yeah, I have cool parents. <laughs> you know, Roddy, most people's fashion sense at least in my experience, starts to develop when they're younger, you know, when they're in their teens. And it sounds like you are someone who is already doing fashion. I want to know a little bit about Rodi Helu's fashion sense. What did the teenage Rodi Helu dress like? What were you attracted to? What excited you about, about clothes and fashion for yourself? Honestly, it's I, I remember like I used to like to dress up. So actually, let me tell you also like a little bit of the background. So I started uh, rescuing animals and getting involved in with activism and campaigns regarding animals, the environment and human rights in 2012. So I was like around maybe 18 years old or like 20 years old. And I remember back then my personality like and my identity even really started to shape. And I remember very well that it was around that period when I started to feel more confident about myself as a person, you know, and... Before that, I used to dress just like any other teenager, whatever is trendy, you know, I would I would get it and just put on whatever is trendy. But after that, I remember really well that I wanted to to kind of like uh, to be different, differentiate myself and my style. And I wanted that my style to reflect me as a person, as like who I really am. And that's when I started to actually I stopped buying clothes. And I instead, I would raid my father's closet and my grandpa's closet. Like, you know, some pieces would date back, I don't know, 50 years. And I would take them and actually start, you know, uh, shortening, tightening, like just upcycling them. And basically, since I would say like for the past nine years that my father's closet and my grandpa's closet turned into my closet. And that's all I wear. I love it. What did your dad and your grandfather think about you altering these classic clothes? Okay, it's really funny because my dad thinks I'm some lunatic because I just go and get stuff from his closet. For him, these stuff are just for, you know, like garden work. You know, he wears them just whenever he has some work in the garden. So they're like trash for him. And he sees me like just really getting them and wearing them. And he's so like, he's so amazed. He's like, what are you thinking? You're embarrassing me. And on the opposite side, my friends, especially like from fashion school, they used to love those pieces. They used to think that my dad was like some sort of a fashion icon addict. So it's really, it's, it's funny because whenever I tell my dad that my friends were astonished by this piece, he would be shocked. Like he, the look on his face would be like, what the hell are these people? Who are they? You know, like, where do they come from? <laughs> Roni graduated from Creative Space Beirut in 2016. 
His brand and first collection were launched at Fashion Forward Dubai. Picture clothes from Roni's dapper grandfather, recut with slits along the leg and buttons repositioned. The result is what you might call outside the box, even daring evening wear. And he made an immediate impression. Elle magazine shouted him out, calling his work impressive, to say the least. And before long, Vogue was calling him one to watch. It was amazing, but it was, there was so much pressure and so much responsibility on me. Because, okay, I created this first collection, but then I'm not here to create a collection. I'm here to create a brand. I'm here to create hundreds of collections, you know, and for to create a brand that will survive, I don't know, 100 years of... Of of, the, of our time, so and then I had to create another collection, and then like I started realizing that like these people st- are starting to have expectations for on me, and I'm just like a very young graduate who just graduated <laughs> fashion school, you know. But I was very lucky to have the mentorship of Creative Space Beirut and of Starch Foundation, who really like directed me through because our industry is is not as easy as people think. As I said before, it takes a lot of investment, it takes a lot of dedication, it takes a lot of research. So at some point, like you, you kind of feel that you, you need to be 100% dedicated for it and literally forget about your social life, forget about anything else. And that's what I had to do. And obviously, so it took a lot of sacrifice for the brand to grow and to, to really like, uh, reach some international, uh, international level of work and of reputation. You've spoken about your mentors and kind of incredible individuals in the industry and in this space who've who've guided you and helped you. And many of those names that you mentioned are names of of women. And you've made it a, a point that you've been building and creating your business, that women are, are at the very heart of that business. And your mom and your sister helped you start your brand. Why has this been so important to you? Why has it been so important to center women within your business? Listen, I think I was raised, so I was raised in a family. We were like, especially like when it comes to cousins, we're very close to each other. A lot of my cousins are like, are women. And I have my sister and I have my mom. So I was raised in an environment that really respects women and really acknowledges like their success. You know, we have this patriarchy that still runs in, in our society. And so I was really shocked by how a lot of like people or, or a lot of my colleagues that I would consider like can be role models and things like had this idea or, or this this perception of of women how they're like they're maybe inferior women are inferior to men and this used to provoke me a lot and I made sure like even within my family I make sure to always empower my sister my mom I want my mom even at her age at 50 years old to go and and experiment and find new hobbies and always stay productive and feel ambition same thing with my sister and with my cousins so I've always had this this support you know like this drive to support women because I, I really feel like I see the potential and I see the places that my cousins have reached in life. And I feel it's really sad for other women in our society for not to, to feel successful or to not, to not reach same heights in their life. And obviously, like subconsciously, this was also reflected to my brand. You know, Ruddy, talking about your family and working with family comes with its own challenges. And I, and I got to level with you. I love my mom. My mom 
was an incredible influence on my life, urged us to be creative, urged us to follow our own path. But I can't quite imagine working with her professionally. How have you managed working with your mom? <laughs> so my, my, my family has always been supportive, but we only started working together end of 2019. When I, when I moved and I, I, I built my own, uh, I moved to my own apartment and I had my own uh, showroom. So we were expanding the business. And then I'm like, mom, again, we need you to discover new things in life. So come on, let's join the business. I want to turn this business into a family business. I want you to join. So my mom started and literally it was really hard. It was really hard. She, we barely like worked together for three months. And then obviously the explosion happened. On August 4th, 2020, a massive explosion went off in the port of Beirut caused by poorly stored ammonium nitrate. It killed over 200 people and injured 7,000 more. Parts of the city were leveled. It was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. For Roni and his family, it was a day that had started out like any other. Honestly, it was, it was a normal day. Actually, it was a strange day, not normal, because for some reason, like now that I look back at it, I realized that a few things happened in a way that was not supposed to happen that led to us surviving. You know, it was like, I don't know, I, I, it was maybe a miracle, you know, like, uh, so uh, I was, during that time, I was uh, working on a project outside of Beirut, and I was, sup- I was supposed to go there that day. My mom, my, my sister, who had recently, literally a week before, joined the team. So my mom and my cousin who was visiting that day. Uh, so we were all at my house working, but also like spending time because it was the lockdown back then. And these two days were like things were opening up to close. I mean, I think it was supposed the country was supposed to close again to go on lockdown again in a few days. So we were all uh, my place, you know, having lunch because my cousin came. So I decided to ditch the, the other project. I, I decided not to go there. So we all stayed at my house and then. My cousin was supposed to leave earlier, you know, actually she was supposed to leave, and my sister as well, they were supposed to leave earlier, which literally would have killed them if they left earlier. But then, like, we ordered some food, and the food got really late, like an hour or so late. So we were sitting in my bedroom and on the um, balcony of my bedroom. So my cousin was actually, she's a smoker. I'm not a smoker. No one's allowed to smoke inside the house. So she was smoking on the balcony with... so. Basically, the door, the balcony door was open. Uh, and because she was smoking, she was able to hear, like, we all heard sounds of warplanes. So she was able to hear that. So my sister has been traumatized since the war of 2006 from the sounds of warplane. So she immediately freaked out and, like, she, she harassed us all just to, to hide. You know, it was because the sound was very high. If they weren't there, I believe I would have stayed in place. I mean, I'm like, okay, I would continue working. But it was them, their fear that pushed us all like to just run to the corridor. And literally the, the second we got there, the entire house exploded. And we got safe because of, the, because of that. All the glass shattered, the doors, the fake walls, everything shattered. Aroni, I, I, I believe in miracles and that, that sounds absolutely miraculous. You know, in the aftermath of, of that explosion, you know, we saw these kind of astonishing pictures, you know, from Beirut, almost unbelievable and unfathomable. This is your city. How have you seen 
the aftermath of the explosion and the pandemic as well affect Beirut and affect Lebanon? Uh, it was really, honestly, it was really hard because as a lot of people know, like the area that was affected the most, which is the Ashrafiye, Marmchay, Jemeze area is the creative district of Beirut. That's where all galleries, stores, concept stores, designers, ateliers, workshops, that's where all of them or like at least 80% of them is based. And then, so obviously being like working in this industry and having a lot of friends that live there, I was scared to death to call someone. Like I, I did not check up on anyone because I was afraid that somebody would like pick up the call and be like, oh, I'm sorry, they died. I was extremely scared. And it took me until literally like midnight till I went to my parents' house, relaxed a bit, you know, like uh, checked up on a few people that I started making phone calls. And then... Talking to people, I realized the amount of damages that we all occurred. And let's not forget that it was summer of 2020. The 2019, like uh, the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020 has, has been a very difficult year for Lebanese people. First, starting with a like devaluation of our currency to like uh, the Thawra to like, you know, all the corruption and all, everything that's been happening in Lebanon. Add on it, the pandemic and the lockdowns. So we really suffered a lot. And then came this. It was literally, it was despair everywhere. And speaking to my friends and speaking to people and see, I mean, uh, thank God we weren't like physically hurt, my family and I, but I know a lot of people that lost neighbors, that lost friends, that lost uh, husbands and boyfriends and partners. The blast obviously like changed our entire lives. And after it, like people had to rethink everything, you know, because actually during the blast, my mom, myself, uh, my sister and I were we're all in the atelier during the blast, so we like, we were all traumatized, uh, obviously for a while, still traumatized, still suffering from uh, PTSD. So, the explosion mobilized Roni. He swiftly turned his attention towards helping the people who weren't as lucky as he was. And that's when that night, when I decided that I want to launch a fundraiser an initiative to raise funds to support at least my friends and, and, and the community that I personally know, which is the creative community. And that's when we launched the United for Lebanese Creatives fundraiser, and we managed to raise $350,000 that we distributed on uh, creatives and creative businesses that were affected by the blast. Hello, I am Dr. Ulrika Al-Khamis, the Aga Khan Museum's Director and CEO. We hope you are enjoying this episode of This Being Human. If you like what you hear, please support us by rating This Being Human on your podcast app or by leaving a review. By sharing your feedback, you will help us grow our audiences and reach more people with the podcast's extraordinary human stories, wonderfully told. Thank you so much. And now back to This Being Human. I love the way your work, Ronnie, and your, your vision really emerges from the place that you're in, the people that are around you, the community that you surround yourself with. And that takes me back to one of your fashion shoots. And you did this one shoot, which became 
kind of became a global phenomenon because a lot of people were talking about it all around the world. You did a shoot at a landfill and you called it Garbage Mountain. So we look at the, the pictures from this shoot and we see these people in these stunning clothes, stunning designs, standing in a garbage dump. Tell us the story of the shoot and why it was so important to you. We were dealing with the garbage crisis at that time. Uh, we're dealing uh, for the past three years, I guess. It's, it's been a while. But then at some point, I realized that people just, again, they, they got fed up with the topic and stopped talking about it while things weren't solved. You know, like we were still dealing with the garbage crisis. There was still a lot of garbage on the streets. And people just, they really, they got fed up and they stopped. They didn't want to talk about it anymore. And I wanted to bring back the topic but to put the spotlight on it again and then create a controversy, create, like, bring back the conversation about the garbage crisis. I saw it as the perfect opportunity because I was creating these clothes that everybody was interested in. And then there's this message that nobody wants to talk about. And it hit me, what if I put these pretty clothes on the garbage, on a, on a landfill, would people would be interested, like, to still look at them and to start a conversation. I wanted to create this controversy and kickstart the conversation again. And we did it with the help of the amazing photographer and one of the founders of Creative Space, George Rohana, and the models who literally like were super happy doing it, although it was, I can't tell you the smells, it was horrible. And everybody was really happy with the results. And as you said, it was a very successful campaign. Like it reached global, you know, like global publications. People were talking about it, which opened the conversation again. And that was really the purpose behind it. Obviously, a lot of people got really upset with it because they were like, oh, you're showing the bad side of Lebanon. No. And for me, like, I don't believe in, in hiding behind somebody's finger, you know, like tell the things that is instead of portraying a false image about Lebanon, just because you want people to think that we're cool and we're fancy and we're I don't know what. No, let's lobby. Let's uh, create uh, pressure, like international pressure, not just local pressure, to actually pressure our corrupt politicians to actually do something. The crisis is not the same as before. It's much, much, much less. But obviously, there's many things that happen. It's not just that campaign. It's not like the campaign solved the entire the entire problem, but it actually it was part of the solution. You did what you set out to do, and you did it remarkably. And it's not just about the photo shoots. It's about your work itself, it's the fashion. You know, the Garbage Mountain works because your designs are so arresting and they appear even more arresting against the backdrop of this environmental crisis. You said that you try to produce sustainable work and one of the ways that you do this is by using previously used or abandoned textiles. I want to know, what's the greatest length you've gone to get the right piece of fabric? So it started again after I came back from London. And back then, I'm someone that is really like, my entire process starts with the fabrics. So it's the textures and the fabric that really start everything, start the, the creative process for me. And I was very upset because at the time, like I would get some fabric. I was always using like, you know, like dead stock fabrics. But like I would get this fabric and then see another designer using it. After all, Lebanon is a small country and, you know, there isn't that much of like fashion businesses in Lebanon. So it makes sense that a lot of designers would put their hand on the same fabric and do something with it. And that was really upsetting. So I was like, OK, I wanted to put my hand on fabric that has a story that is that is not new. It's vintage or dead stock. 
and that nobody has access to. How am I going to do it? And then it hit me that because in Lebanon, especially before the civil war, we had textile factories, you know, like we, we had an actual industry that we completely lost due, due to the war. So I decided to research in the areas that some people would call ghetto, you know, like these suppliers that had their places for a long time, maybe like some people, maybe for 60 years. And I actually went there in person and started talking to these people. Most of them were like old men, you know, like, and I introduced myself and I would ask them about their story. They have really interesting stories. For example, like this one guy who used to have this huge store in downtown Beirut, and then he lost it after the civil war. And then that store is the Louis Vuitton store today. And this guy has this very small shop now in in Fenishabek in a, in a suburb like area in the suburb. So there's like these stories about war and how they lost everything and how they like built rebuilt things and survived. And that was very inspiring to me. And then at some point I'm like, okay, I like your fabrics, but do you have any old stock? He was shocked. He was like, but why do you want my old stock? He, like he wouldn't understand. For him, that's like some waste now or some dead stock sitting in the warehouse, considered some sort of a loss, you know? And I'm like, honestly, I'm interested in that. Like, I'm interested in old fabrics. I don't want any new fabric. And then he went to his depot and he brought these amazing, amazing, amazing wool, vintage wool. Like some some of them would date like 40 years back, like uh, Italian fabrics. You know, like, you know, when fabrics are vintage, there's this, the texture changes a bit. It's, it's different. The colors look more old. And I love that vibe. Like, I can feel the story behind them uh, without even knowing what the story is. And then funny thing that, so I bought the first time. And then every week after that, the guy started actually going down to his warehouse and look for these old pieces, like rolls of fabric. And he would call me every week, be like, okay, I found this new fabric come for a cup of coffee and let me show you what I have new. And, you know, basically I created this relationship between myself and the supplier. And it's not a relationship between a designer and a supplier anymore. It's about two people who enjoy each other's company and can benefit each other. And I'm still friends with these people till now. Now that I'm in Doha, actually, before coming here five months ago, like I asked them to go down to their stock again and get me samples of all the fabrics that they have. And obviously, like every time I go to Beirut and I, and I hear about this like new old store, I go and visit them and explain the story. And again, I created this community of small businesses around me that support me and I support them uh, in return. Rody, before we wrap up, I have to ask you this question and, um, I could see it hanging in the background, you know, of what you're saying, because you bring so much heart and passion to your work. One of the things that's so fascinating about Lebanon is that it is a truly multi-religious, multi-faith society. I think there's very few nations in the world which contend with the presence of so many distinctive spiritual traditions, all in the same place, all engaging with each other constantly and actively. I want to ask about you. What are your spiritual practices? What are the places that you go to keep this heart, this vitality, this care, and this passion alive? To be honest, I'm not a very spiritual person. 
but I believe that I have a very, um, like, I mean, good heart. I don't, I don't know if that's the word. It actually started when I started rescuing animals. I've always been an animal lover and like, you know, like a planet, a tree hugger. But when I started rescuing, you actually, it brings you a lot of some sort of a joy, a lot of joy and satisfaction to know that actually you saved a life. And so after I started rescuing, I actually turned a vegetarian, then turned vegan. And literally it's that process to me where I started appreciating every small detail in life. I make sure now when I walk, I don't step on, I don't know, ants. I don't kill mosquitoes because for me, okay, I know that they might be buggy and I don't know, like they, they might be annoying. But like now, like as a person, I think about literally what, what it takes, you know, like the physics and the energy and the time that it took actually to create this organism. And even the fact of them just, I don't know, like flying, you know, for me, I think about all those details. And this is spirituality for me, you know, like this is what keeps me, it's the appreciation of everything around us. I really appreciate everything around me, like the small microorganisms and the small micro processes and or systems, microsystems in, in life to the like biggest thing. I have a very, like a, a huge appreciation for them and a huge respect. And I try my best, like not to affect in any negative way, any of that, you know, anything that surrounds me. And for me, that's my spirituality. When I do that, when I know that I have a like a guilt-free conscious, you know, I have, I'm feeling very, I feel very spiritual and I don't know, I feel alive. Ronnie Hillu, what is this being human to you? I believe being human is being selfless and being in sync with everything that surrounds us. We are one species on this planet and one out of I don't know how many billions of species in the entire universe. So it's important that we appreciate the miracle that created us in first place, but it's also important to know that we are not the gods of this universe. Our miracle is equal to every other miracle of creation that happens on this planet, on that other planet, in that other galaxy. So when we think of ourselves as just that one other dot in this universe, that's when we become selfless and humane. Roddy Hillu, thank you for making the time to speak to me on This Being Human. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This Being Human is an Antica production. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Our intern is Annie McLeod. Original music by Boombox Sound. Our executive producer is Lisa Gabriel. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum, one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Islamic civilizations around the world. 
For more information about the museum, go to www.agachanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank Nader and Shabin Muhammad for their philanthropic support to develop and produce This Being Human.